All right, so this is uh, Doc Scott Talks. This is the 90-day devotional, No More Cycles. And I apologize, it's about um, 2.07, and I usually do this at 7 a.m. But we got back from Dawsonville, Georgia, um, um, Monday night. And essentially, um, the minute I got out of the car, like, my back went out. And so, <laughs> um, I'm about one or two muscle relaxers in for the for the day now and some couple injections and whatnot and I should be doing much better and be back on this tomorrow. So at any rate I apologize for not being there earlier today and I will post today's devotional up there as well, the written part. Um Dawsonville again of course was incredible and I did share about that one um a little bit. We went for our second time and I think I'm just kind of overwhelmed by what I see there in terms of just absolute redemption. You know, people um, melting. I mean, just literally melting in the presence. And um, everything just kind of washing off of them. You know, it really is symbolic of um, baptism. And, you know, of the, you know, the whole thing of the old is gone, the new has come. And, um, I've been around a couple revivals, you know, in my day and, um, this one, you know, there's some things that are hallmarks for every one of them, but this one, um, you know, let me just say this, like you had Brownsville salvation. People came in off the street to get saved. The minute they played the mercy seat song, everybody ran down to get saved. So salvation is always huge. And, um, that's, you know, I see people coming in here and laying down addictions, laying down whatever, just wanting more of Jesus. And that's one of the way that you, ways that you kind of evaluate the fruit of revivals. Revivals have a messiness um, factor to them. You know, and if you want the power of the ox, you got to deal with the mess in the stall. And some are more messy than others. And so, you know, you always have to be willing to, um, to deal with what comes in it and actually pastor people through it, which honestly teaching people about what's going on in the context of revival is really important. And also just being able to, um, you know, to, you know, acknowledge what God is doing in the room, um, inviting people into what God is doing and, you know, letting people just experience God. And so sometimes we don't allow for that because we don't like mess. You know, in the church, we, we rarely like mess. But um, I think um, Jesus is okay with mess. I mean, he entered into the mess. He entered our humanity. He took all of the mess on himself. So there really isn't, you know, anything that we should be afraid of and allowing Holy Spirit to come and have his way in that context. And, you know, I do think there are sovereign times, sovereign places, sovereign outpourings. This looks like an outpouring that's probably going to go all over the country. Um, and we're primed for it. Um, I know that we feel the seeds of awakening beginning to blossom even where we are now um, in just all of our environments here. So it, it is happening. It is good. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how shame, you know, what do we do when things are chronic? Um, when you look at the generation and you look at what they've already experienced, okay, 
in terms of family, in terms of divorce, brokenness in the culture, abuse. I mean, I see it all every day. So when you look at, like, when it takes years of putting something into people in terms of their responses to what happens and all the ways that we protect our hearts and all the ways that we we make vows not to experience this kind of pain or that kind of pain again and the things we put in place to prevent that are all self-protective and you know everything about who we become and how we process through has to do with how we respond to what happened and when you have people coming to you that have already been through the things that they've they've been through they've already had various types of abuse or you know just horrific things happen in their past um you don't have the option at that juncture you're not you're not pastoring them through how to respond to something live you're pastoring them through how to respond to something that's already happened and i remember years ago i would do um recovery groups that were 24 weeks long and people would come in with every kind of you know sexual addiction you could think of and even some you couldn't you know um that you couldn't think of or you hadn't thought of and it was always an interesting point in the night when we would break up into men and women's groups and i would sit first and and basically let people talk about what they experienced that week and inevitably you know i would hear stories of defeat of shame as they stumbled back into their addiction, cycled back through shame, and, and there they were again. And so in the atmosphere, when everybody, you know, you would literally watch people's heads drop, their eyes drop as they shared their stories, indicative of shame. And, um, and even though we were trying to create a safe environment for them, people to actually say those kind of things out loud, many of them had been in the church had left the church because they got a very simplistic answer to their problem. You know, read more, pray harder, you know, go to the altar. And for some of the life-dominating things they were dealing with, that just wasn't cutting it. And, you know, they had been rejected in that sense because they, they didn't clean up in time and they didn't clean up in the right way. They were a little bit too messy. And, you know, and, this, and then they experienced more rejection and ultimately more shame, but this time from the church. So um, when we get to that point in the meeting when people would be like just, you know, kind of desperate, you could feel the desperation in the air, the hopelessness and um, discouragement with where they were at in their struggle. And then as they began to lift their heads after everyone in the circle had shared, their eyes would come back to me. And in that moment, I'm having to think about what am I going to say that is going to be grace and life to them. If I were to berate them at that juncture, they would never come back for one. And they would talk in their story about loving Jesus, wanting to serve God, but just not understanding why they didn't have this instantaneous deliverance. You know, revival is awesome because in the context of revival, many times we do have spontaneous, instant deliverances that stick. And sometimes we still have to process some things and walk them out. And so it's that part that gets kind of tricky um, or in terms of where people go. And inevitably, in this scenario, here's what I would say to them, you know, something like this. Shame wants you to disconnect. 
Your shame wants you to hide. And your shame is a lie that the enemy is fueling that says that God has turned away from you. Look, God is not dysfunctional. He is not a dysfunctional dad. He doesn't blow up and walk away. He doesn't do silent treatment. He doesn't withdraw and, and try to do something to punish you. He doesn't rage at us. He's always good and he's always in a good mood. And when people feel separation from God, it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with shame and where their experience. It's a perceptual thing. Okay. Perception is reality. Okay. So regardless of whether it's true or not where people are living, you know, if I give you the pat answer of, well, here's, you know, and I, when I say this, when I say, when I rehearse truth or I tell you, here's what the Bible has to say, I don't mean pat in the sense that the word of God has no power. It always has power. It's a supernatural book, as Sid Ross says. Every time you're in it, there's something going on. But to someone who has been doing the disciplines of the faith for a really long time and is struggling with a life-dominating issue, for me to tell them, you don't need to feel shame because Jesus loves you, in that moment, doesn't penetrate where they're living. Because the reality of where they're living is they feel shame and they feel separated. So perception is everything. So the thing that I'm really ministering to in that moment is their perception. And so my words at that juncture become very important. And so I try to define what's going on in the moment. This is what you're experiencing in the moment. This is the lie of the enemy telling you that Jesus is not present but it's something that is the product of your thinking based on the things that you've already experienced. Your history and your emotions are telling you a lie. My history and my emotions can lie to me. And yes, there is truth, but sometimes I have to rehearse truth. And part of that process when we're dealing with people who are dealing with very long, you know, life dominating issues, we do want to get them to declare the truth and begin to say things with their mouth out loud and declaring, you know, the triumph, the victory, what the blood of Jesus has done for them. We do want them to do that, to declare it and begin to let it seep into their heart. But at the same time, when they are viscerally feeling and they're in the moment of shame, we could talk about their declaration in a minute. Right now, we need to evoke the presence of Jesus. We neglect that part. And that's the part, honestly, if I had to say, if there is one major piece that, that we don't do, is come Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you with my words that Jesus is present right now, but I'm going to invite him to come and bring a demonstration of his presence. Because in his presence, we become. We are presence-oriented creatures. We were made to live in his presence. And without invoking the presence of Jesus and Holy Spirit and asking the Holy Spirit to show up here tangibly, there isn't anything 
in the, in the moment that I can do to change your perception. And the other part that also happens is when we actually, when the Holy Spirit is present, he's doing so much more than what I could imagine. And so my goal isn't to give you a check sheet of what you've got to do. My goal is to listen. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. In invoking the presence of Jesus and listening to Holy Spirit, I guarantee you he's a good counselor. And you might find yourself leading people into an encounter with Jesus rather than just giving them the truth about their shame and why they shouldn't have it. And so we always want to bring people into that encounter. And as ones who facilitate and host the presence of God, that's our job. You know, when people come to you at that juncture in a group or a meeting or whatever for prayer, it's not the time for me to hear every aspect and jot and tittle of the story. I want to hear enough to know what's going on, but I also want to leave room and make room for Holy Spirit to come and begin to do something for you as I listen to what he's saying, because he will inform your prayer and he will show you. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are all about. And so as presence-oriented creatures, we become. We become all things in his presence. And so, and when we look at people that we're working with or just talking to that are dealing with longstanding issues, there are a couple things we hold in tension. One, you are being set free, present continuous. And if you aren't experiencing the reality of that freedom today, you need to know that Jesus is not afraid of your mess. So stop hiding. The biggest thing that the enemy can get you to do is to stop having your conversation with Jesus because you feel like you don't belong. The biggest thing that the enemy wants to shut down is that conversation. And that conversation is one, because shame is relational, it's something that it's experienced in the context of relationship. The, the, the conversation that I'm having with Jesus as he's releasing his healing word to me is key in my restoration and my the breaking of shame. I'm telling you, pull out your journal and listen to the two words that Jesus has given you. Because two words from the mouth of Jesus can dismantle a whole event in your past a whole shame-inspired encounter back here where a lot of it got birthed from. It can dismantle some of the strongholds that are in your heart because the only way that we find out who we are is Jesus has to tell, tell us who we are. My assumption when we are living in places as people where shame is pretty much the bedrock of the soil is that our identity is shame-based. So how do I get a new identity? I can't look to the creature. The creature can't tell me who I am. That's part of the problem. I've looked at the creature my whole life and say, you tell me if I'm okay. You tell me if I did okay on that. You tell me if I'm acceptable. You tell me if I'm loved. You know, in the body of Christ, we probably should be having a lot of people that do tell us who we are. And if you're not surrounded by people who can do that, then get out. Find some place where they do. Find a place 
where people can tell you the truth about who you really are and that will call forth the gold in you and will not look at you when you're on day 35 of your stumble or you fell back into the mud. Look, what is the only gracious thing that I could say at that juncture? Grace for somebody who's struggling with habitual things or life-dominating issues is not you're not doing it right. Is not you're a defective Christian because you're obviously not reading. You're obviously the only thing that I can do to minister grace and love, which is always the standard fare of the kingdom, is always grace and love. Is keep talking. Don't let the enemy shut your voice up. Don't let the enemy shut you down. Don't let the enemy tell you that your God is the same as your dysfunctional parent that hid or did whatever they did because he's not. He's present with you. And that's where when we mediate the presence of God, what do you think it does for someone who feels separated and all of a sudden they feel a warm blanket descend on them? They feel electricity running up through their body because the presence of Jesus is all over them. If Jesus was afraid of you, he wouldn't be here right now, touching you, loving you. Because what we have to be able to do is get people in the habit of practicing the presence of Jesus. And in the habit of acknowledging that his presence is with them, even when they don't feel it. And we have to enable them and empower them to evoke the presence and mediate the presence on their own. We all are mediators of the presence. We all mediate the presence. When we lay our hands on somebody, there is something happening. When I lay my hands on students, whoever, other people, they feel something. You, It's in you. If all of the kingdom of heaven is in me, one thing I've got to do myself is get my own identity right. Because there's a direct correlation to the times that I know who I am and what gets mediated through me. When I'm walking in my own shame, what gets mediated through me sometimes happens in spite of me, yes, but my, but my ability to walk into and my confidence to walk into situations knowing who I am and what I carry it gets diminished if I'm walking in my own. So the first thing is get my own head right that way. Jesus is with me and he wants to mediate his presence through me. And I'm going to enable you. I'm going to show you what it's like to get into his presence. Because in his presence, everything is restored. If the conversation is restored with God and people begin to experience that when they feel and experience shame because they did whatever, fell into whatever, whatever, whatever we do, whatever people are doing to ease that pain, they need to have repeated experiences of his presence and encountering his presence. And literally, I've done enough research on the brain and addiction to know that their brain will get rewired. We get into ruts, we get into places with addiction, because my brain and the reward center of my brain has already mapped a new course. 
And when I do something repetitive or I go into some of the same places or even ways of thinking, if you haven't picked up Dr. Caroline Leaf's book on brain science, pick it up because she's a brain scientist who's a Christian who actually gives you the science behind that your thoughts actually create RNA strands. Your thoughts are actually tangible. They create RNA. They create things. A thought creates something. So what does that mean? It means it means that your thoughts can literally change your DNA. Let me say that part again. Your thoughts can change your DNA. Mediating the presence of Jesus helps me in that process of doing something with my thoughts because his thoughts penetrate my thoughts. His thought penetrates my shame message. Instead of me saying, I'm a dumb blankety blank blup blup, he says, I love you. Did you ever think I could be afraid of your humanity? Did you think you could ward me off? Did you think you could scare me? Did you think you could catch me off guard? When Jesus says that to somebody, whose immediate place to go is to cycle through the mapped out courses in their brain of all the negative self-talk that they've been listening to and feeding themselves, that interruption begins to chart a new path. And then when we access the presence continually, as others mediate, as we mediate, my brain changes and a new path gets forged in my brain. My thoughts literally change my DNA. That's why we can never see anyone based on where they came from. If that were the truth, I would be a horrific monster. Just based on bio biology alone, biological data, I would, I, yeah, I would be a horrific person. DNA does not determine who you are. We have heavenly DNA, and our thoughts determine what we believe. And our thoughts inform our emotions. And those thoughts and emotions together change my brain. If you want to blow your own mind, think about what Romans 12, 2, 1 and 2. Do not be transformed by by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God made me physically so that my brain could be rewired and the thoughts of his word could penetrate my brain and literally change the chemistry of my brain and my DNA. It doesn't surprise me that that's how he made us. But when you put the science to it, it really is kind of fun. That literally the renewing of your mind is something that's a chemical process in your brain. And it's something that reroutes your brain. And so knowing and hearing the truth of God's word, yes, does change me. And as I rehearse it, it does. When I'm dealing with people who have long-standing stuff, we do that on one hand. That's one end of the spectrum. I'm always telling you the truth, telling you who you are. And the other part is I mediate the presence where you apprehend it yourself. 
And Jesus actually begins to do the change. My prayer is that in the context of revival, we're going to see so many people instantly set free because of the kind and the depth and the breadth of encounter they have with the Holy Spirit. And for those that still continue to struggle as they try to walk it out with Jesus and still love Jesus, for those that we will mediate the presence and teach them how to mediate the presence and therefore, comma, as they rehearse the truth, the truth of the rhema word that God gives them in the moment and the word that comes by spirit from the page, both will change their brains and they won't be living in shame. Get rid of shame, you get rid of addiction. It's that simple. So Jesus, let me wrap this. I thank you that um, I don't have to figure it out. We don't have to figure it out ourselves. Jesus, we don't even know everything about this. We don't know anything. But I'm asking you to download revelation from heaven that just gives us real insight into how to mediate your presence better, both personally on our own and for others. And Lord, that the whole reality of mediating your presence, I just declare, is, re is returning to the church and in the context of revival is returning on steroids. Lord, I ask that not only would we have a transforming experience in revival as you bring, as you pour out your spirit, but would we have an ongoing transformation as we learn and live and move and have our being in your presence, Jesus. Show us what that means. Lord, that you would, you would heal this gap between our experience of the presence and the thing that's in my head and the place that I am incapable of dismantling shame apart from you. And Jesus, we declare that even in the journey, no matter what part of the journey I'm in, no matter where I'm at, we declare that you're good. We declare that you never leave us. You're not a dysfunctional dad. You love us and that we are always safe. We are always safe, whether I'm in the middle of the storm and I'm saying to that storm, peace be still, or I'm in the middle of radical inner renewal and ecstasy and blissed out of my brain in your presence, regardless of where I'm at, you are good and that everything is found in you. Jesus, you made a way for my wholeness. You made a way to make me whole. And I'm laying down all of my religion. I'm trading it in, Jesus. I'm trading in my religion for a relationship with you. I'm trading in everything that I do to try to get it all right for a relationship where your presence, your very presence is the thing that gives me life and changes me and even changes my brain as my brain begins to think new thoughts. So bless us, Jesus. 
I just ask that you do that for everybody that's journeying with me in this and those that will. This is day 17. I'm going to go back and actually number this, the Facebook ones and make them days because I knew I missed um, the holiday and I don't want the date and the day to get confused. So I'll just call them days. Day 17. We've got how many more till 90, right? So thank you for journeying. And I will be back tomorrow without necessarily being on steroids and anti-inflammatories and whatnot and whatever. But I wasn't impaired, I promise. All right, see you guys tomorrow.